Hi everybody, I'm Ashwin and I'm Raj and this is Blood Cancer Talks. Uh, this is a podcast exclusively dedicated to hematologic malignancies where we bring content experts who live and breathe a particular disease and focus on the latest advances in biology and clinical management. Today, we are excited to talk about the management of acquired aplastic anemia. We have an expert, Dr. Amy Dezern, who is an associate professor of oncology at Johns Hopkins. She's also the director of bone marrow failure and MDS program at Johns Hopkins. Dr. Dezern, thank you so much for joining us. Before we start, can you tell us about yourself and your clinical and research focus? Hi, everyone. I'm so pleased to be here, and I'm very grateful for the invitation. So I am in Baltimore at Johns Hopkins, and I treat all flavors of bone marrow failure, soup to nuts in the clinic. Probably one of my favorites is aplastic anemia. I do novel therapeutics, diagnostics, and bone marrow transplant for these disorders. I've always been at Hopkins, and I run a lot of clinical trials in this arena. With that background, uh, let's jump into our um, case. Well, we want to start with the case, and you can walk us through how you would approach this patient, and we can discuss the data as we go. So this is an interesting case I saw in the clinic. Um, this is a, obviously, I changed a lot of uh, patient identifiers, um, just to disclose. This is a 64-year-old woman with uh, no significant past medical history. She presented with symptoms of fatigue, easy bruising, and uh, dyspnea on exertion. Um, she had a blood work done, um, which showed a white blood cell count of 0.8 and a hemoglobin of 7.3 and a plated count of 11. Given this significant pancytopenia of unclear origin, uh, she underwent a bone marrow aspiration and biopsy, which showed you know, markedly hypocellular marrow with 5 to 10% cellularity with a rare hematopoietic elements, uh, no blasts um, or lymphocytes, um, uh, clonal lymphocytes, detected by flow cytometry. With this case, Dr. Dezern, can you give us a, a 10,000 foot view of for our audience on what is aplastic anemia? Sure. So this is actually a great case and not an uncommon one. Aplastic anemia really is the quintessential disorder of marrow failure. It's also a bit of a diagnosis of exclusion. And you made some very salient clinical points as you presented the case about what was not there no blasts, no abnormal lymphocytes. She has all the clinical stigmata of true pancytopenia with the fatigue and dyspnea related to her anemia, the easy bruising, perhaps some petechiae related to her thrombocytopenia. Luckily, we didn't hear that she has had a lot of recurrent infections with her leukopenia and presumed neutropenia, but these are the way these patients present, often without much of a prodrome. And aplastic anemia that's acquired in this particular age group really needs to be distinguished from hypocellular MDS in somebody in their 60s. You know, aplastic anemia actually has a bimodal age distribution, and there can be acquired or inherited causes. But today we're focusing on acquired, which is more common in somebody um, in the fifth, sixth, and seventh decades. Certainly, um, there's a little bit of a different prevalence throughout the world based on a person's um, ethnic background. 
that estimates are confounded by the fact that it is a diagnosis of exclusion. But in Europe, Israel, the U.S., where I assume this patient presented to you, it's about two to four cases per million with a bit higher prevalence in Asian countries, maybe five to eight cases per million. And there is this bimodal age presentation about 15 to 25 in the young. And this woman being over age 60 is the second peak for presentation. And as I alluded to, she presents just as we would expect. Thank you, Dr. Dezan, for that excellent introduction and a good overview of uh, aplastic anemia. And one question I get to ask all the, all the patients ask me, is this cancer? Because they are seeing an oncologist and they always ask the first question is, is this cancer? How do you address that question with the patients? Well, I do get on my soapbox a little bit because it's a tricky one. And I think if we put ourselves in the patient's shoes, it is hard to come into an oncology center, see an oncologist, yet be told, oh, this is an autoimmune disease. This is not a blood cancer. And I explain it similar to that, that it really is not a cancer. It does not have the neoplastic or the tumor type that people normally think about with a cancer. But I'm also very candid with them that even though this is a quote unquote benign disease, thus not a cancer, there are a number of malignant features that manifest in a human being. And so we must choose therapies that are intensive, sometimes toxic, because even as a non-cancer, the clinical sequelae to the individual can be quite significant if we don't act. Um, are there any characteristic uh, mutations or somatic alterations that are associated with aplastic anemia? So this is where it does get tricky back to the, is this a cancer? Because all disorders like this, and we could talk for hours about clonal hematopoiesis and how all hematopoiesis is actually clonal. It's whether or not it's um, a clonal aberrancy. But if we fundamentally go back to the true pathophysiology of acquired severe aplastic anemia, it's an immune-mediated process from a T-cell attack at the level of the CD34 progenitor cell. And I always describe it that depending on who the patient is, a grandfather or grandmother stem cell of the patient has been attacked by their own T-cells, which may be clonal. And that may allow us not to see as many blood cells in production, but we could see other mutations associated with this. And this is very nuanced because it doesn't mean they have a cancer just because they have a acquired mutation, but you can have a clonal process at the same time as your aplastic anemia, like a large granular lymphocyte population that is clonal. You can have clonal hematopoiesis in the MDS way or CHIP you know, mutations. B-core is very common, a little more insidious. ASXL1 can be seen, RUNCS1 can be seen, and then of course DNMT3A and TET2. And then the most common evidence of clonality, especially in acquired aplastic anemia, is a PIG-A mutation. And I think many of us know that PIG-A is the gene on the X chromosome that causes GPI anchor protein deficient cells, which actually is the presence of a PNH clone. And as many as 40 or 50% of patients, especially in this age group, as your patient is, present with the presence of that population, which is an immune escape population of cells lacking CD55 and CD59, the GPI anchor proteins. 
And that's that PNH clone. And that's the other part of the conversation with these patients that can get tricky. Do I have PNH also? Do I have two diseases? And the answer is actually no, but it's this population of cells that's associated with acquired aplastic anemia. And that's why I explain it to a patient about the T-cell attack. One population of cells, their stem cells that are supposed to make them healthy blood, gets pushed back. And some of these other clonal populations are given a selected advantage to grow. And that's why we can detect them with our tests. Fantastic. I think one other point I wanted to um, make to our audience is how do we differentiate acquired aplastic anemia compared to something like hypoplastic MDS, where you also see you know, hypocellular marrow? How do you make that distinction between hypoplastic MDS and acquired aplastic anemia? I will be candid. Even in expert centers with serial bone marrow assessments, it is not always easy. The presence of a PNH clone really distinguishes between inherited and acquired disease. And then, as I just alluded to, you can have MDS-style mutations that are CHIP or the clonal hematopoiesis that we think of in the MDS world can rarely be seen in aplastic anemia. True hypoplastic MDS, though, may not have as low of CD34 progenitors as aplastic anemia does, where usually in severe disease, they're essentially unable to be found by flow cytometry. And then dysplasia, I never worry about dysplasia in the erythroid lineage in aplastic anemia because there can be stress erythropoiesis that makes them look a little funny. So that's not it. But certainly if there's profound uh, dyspoiesis, really abnormal looking megakaryocytes, all kinds of neutrophilic dysplasia, that's more in keeping with hypoplastic MDS, not aplastic anemia. And then certainly there are certain karyotypic abnormalities by metaphase karyotype that are diagnostic of MDS, monosomy 7 being probably the most adverse. Deletion 13Q or trisomy 8 are actually fairly common in aplastic anemia and not considered diagnostic of hypoplastic MDS. But that's a very lengthy way of my saying sometimes it's truly difficult. Whether or not it matters, I think, becomes the next clinical question. Um, one of the um, you know, biggest mystery in aplastic anemia is you know, what triggers this disease? I think that's a question even a lot of patients ask as well. Um, yes, there is a um, aplastic anemia secondary to iatrogenic uh, because of the chemical exposures. But apart from those, are there any known uh, risk factors for acquired aplastic anemia? You know, as you allude to, we can find table after table in historical textbook that lists medicines, chemical exposures, as you note, viral exposures. There's a very clear um, autoimmune hepatitis aplastic anemia bent that we see. Often, if I take a thorough personal and family history, there is other autoimmunity in the patient or their family. And so I do have a bit of a spiel with patients that sometimes autoimmune diseases track in individual human beings as well as in individual families. Infections, viral in particular, have long been known to trigger the immune system in a particular way. There are some people that hypothesize that vaccines could even do it. I think the data is less clear and not concrete in those two arenas. 
and probably the best data is with particular medication exposure. But I will be honest, at the bedside, I know everybody wants the answer to the why question, but I try and tell them that unfortunately, sometimes we can't always explain biology, but we're here now and we must look forward instead of looking back if we can to make sure that we can treat the disease they have now. The other clear predisposing factor that is often more transient is pregnancy, and that's in young women, women and probably not as relevant in this woman who's a bit more mature. All right. So, uh, Dr. Bizzard, do you always check for a PNH clone when um, you're seeing a new patient with a diagnosis of aplastic anemia or acquired aplastic anemia? And let's say if you find a PNH clone, how does that impact your management or, you know, choosing choosing treatment? Does it depend on the size of the PNH clone, for example, or other factors? So it's a good question. To the first part of that, the short answer is yes. I absolutely, regardless of age, if I believe the diagnosis is aplastic anemia and I'm working them up thoroughly, I check that. The other tests that I often do, uh, one that can be done in some centers is a genetic testing for 6P, copy neutral loss of heterozygosity. In patients that are much younger, usually less than 50 or 60, I check for Fanconi. I also check telomere length analyses just to make sure that we're differentiating between what we know is acquired with the presence of a PNH clone or 6P LOH, or heaven forbid, we're diagnosing a new genetic variant. And then once we have that in my head, I look at the size of the PNH clone and then look at some other clinical tests, what I would call functional tests, to understand if that PNH clone is causing any clinical things like hemolysis. It's very rare. In fact, I can't recall in my many aplastics having diagnosed somebody with aplastic anemia in a thrombotic event at the same time, which is obviously the other risk of the PNH clone. But occasionally, these patients have demonstrable hemolysis with an elevated LDH, but an inability to augment their reticulocyte count to show that the bone marrow failure is really the issue. And this is very nuanced. I'm sure it would be great if I can answer your good question by saying less than 10% I do this, up to 50% of a PNH clone I do that. But it is a bit more of a gestalt and a clinical decision. Most of the time I consider it this immune escape population. However, there are patients in whom prior to true therapy, I decide they need C5 blockade with something like eculizumab to make sure the therapy that we've chosen, something like ATG as conditioning for transplant or even standard ATG for immunosuppression does not make them clot because that can happen if the PNH clone is sizable. And so that's really the reason to check. One question I had, uh, Dr. Dezen, about is PNH testing. Uh, this is something I have debate with um, the hematopathology colleagues is do we need only the flow cytometry or do we also need to check pigmentation or both need, both are complementary to each other? Obviously, we're going to have a separate episode on PNH, but just to you know, complete the workup, do we need to check for both of the uh, these tests or one is enough to make the diagnosis? The flow cytometry stands alone because truthfully, plus, and in fairness, this may be the discussion you're having with your heme path colleagues, flow is far more sensitive, right? And if you're using eight or 10 color flow, you're getting down to 0 
zero, zero 001 or 0 0.01, depending on where you are, whereas mutational testing has a threshold. And if it's 2% or 5% in your lab, you may actually not pick up the pig, muta pig A mutation, but nor do you need to. If you see that population by flow cytometry of GPI anchor protein deficient cells, you have okay. your clone. All right. So now the next, you know, we'll um, switch gears and go into risk stratification. So once you have secured the diagnosis of aplastic anemia and you are thinking about treatment, you know, how do you first risk stratify these patients? Well, you know, it's funny. There are these historical dogma that I think we all adhere to because it's what we've always done. And the committed criteria were originally published for trial eligibility in 1976. In our world, that's that's a paper that was a while ago. But I actually find there's sincere utility as I talk to the patient, because all of us are good at putting ourselves into a category and then basing our therapies on that. And so I do distinguish between non-severe or moderate, where the neutrophil count is higher than 500. That doesn't mean they're transfusion independent, but to me, it's about the neutrophils. Severe disease, where um, less than 500, and then very severe disease, less than 200. I'm not exceptionally pedantic about it, but rarely do I treat true moderate aplastic anemia. I have this one patient who, it's hard for both of us sometimes, but I have been watching him for almost 14 years and all of his cell lines are down, but he's transfusion independent and has never had an infection and is very physically active. So it's not limited. He doesn't wow. actually need treatment. He has a PNH clone. He's hypocellular by age. But we have to remember that every therapy has a toxicity, even if it's just increased healthcare interactions. And so if you really aren't having clinical sequelae of blood counts that technically fall in the yellow range in EPIC, it's still okay to watch that. Severe and very severe disease, though, I'm quite efficient about moving to a path of care. And that's how I explain it in terms of risk stratification to the patient. When the risk of their disease is putting them at risk for harm, we must then invoke a therapy that may have side effects as well. So now um, this is an excellent segue to talk about uh, management of aplastic anemia. So once you have completed the workup, um, which included the bone marrow aspiration and biopsy, um, you also mentioned that you would check for the mutation status, including you know PNH clone. Can you walk us through your thought process on how you pick the optimal treatment regimen for a new diagnosis of severe aplastic anemia. And obviously, I think the first step is whether bone marrow transplant or no bone marrow transplant. But um, can you walk us through your thought process? Well, you sort of leap to it with me. And I think all of our patients and all of us where we can want to offer a path to potential cure for any disease that we see, right? That's what the patient wants. They want to get better and not have to think about this anymore. And we just have to balance whether or not that's plausible in an individual human being. I come from a center that doesn't have an upper age limit of transplant. This woman has no other health problems of note that you mentioned to us. And so I do not consider a 64-year-old someone who I would immediately say is too advanced in age for transplant. Certainly, we need to talk about donor suitability as well as the social implications of how one gets a transplant. And one thing about the way I practice medicine, and it's a little unusual for someone to do their own diagnostics, their own therapeutics, and their own transplants, but it's specifically because I want to be able to have these really informed 
decisions with an individual patient about what the options are. So in a patient like this, I would very clearly say what the options are, immunosuppressive therapy or transplant, the pros and perhaps cons of each option, and really work with them efficiently to make sure that we could get where they wanted to be. So in a, like, for example, in a 64-year-old, um, if in your workup, and the patient has severe aplastic anemia and has a donor, would you take them to transplant uh, if they do not have any comorbidities or do you try the immunosuppressive therapy? And we'll talk more about the immunosuppressive therapy. Um, but you would try that first or would you? Uh... I would be comfortable. They would need to really understand what that meant because I don't think any of us are unaware that sometimes, you know, certainly in a 25-year-old, they bounce back a little quicker than a nearly 65-year-old, but it wouldn't at all be uncommon for a patient like this to visit me in my clinic surrounded by numerous children and loved ones. And so that's someone that sometimes the day I meet them, I can type the family members that are with them, type the patient, and we'll know if this is an option. You know, certainly this is a woman, I'm making some assumptions, but let's say she has all these children. She reminds me of a patient I have that has four children that all came with her on the first visit, um, who was 63 when I met her. And there were some donor-specific antibodies to some of her children. And so not everybody's going to have an immediately available donor, but I would offer it if it was in keeping with our goals and we had a donor and we could get there efficiently. Okay. Um, just one quick question about transplant uh, before we before Ashwini go on to the immunosuppressive therapy. Regarding, I, I know in Johns Hopkins, uh, you guys do a lot of haploidentical transplant. But in this patient, let's say if you had a if you had a haplo donor and not a mashed sibling donor, would that deter you from doing a transplant? Like, would you consider that too risky, or uh, you would consider like if you have a ten out of ten mud versus mashed sibling? versus haploidentical, you would consider them as equivalent for as far as outcomes are concerned? Actually, I would consider a haplo better here. So I say this very respectfully, but presumably her siblings are also in their 60s, maybe 70s. I always kind of say, if you're going to get a new car, let's get a newer model. And usually haplo children are younger than fully matched siblings. Now, certainly there can be families where that's not the case, but I think in this case, it's the most likely. And you can control the graft in your institution with a haplo, because remember, these are bone marrow harvests. And there's often less of a delay with related family members compared to even an expedited unrelated. So I have no problem with upfront haplo here. So, um, so Dr. Dezan, let's now dissect some of the initial data which led to the uh, standardization of immunosuppressant therapy. Um, can you walk us through how um, we came about to the randomized study done by our European colleagues for this year? Before we jump into that study, can we can you please walk us through some of the studies which were published earlier? So really, since the pathophysiology of T-cell-mediated attack as an autoimmune disease for aplastic anemia was known, we've been studying immunosuppressive therapy paradigms to knock back that T-cell attack so that the blood counts can recover. We started with ATG alone, not so hot. Then we added ATG in combination with cyclosporin, and that was where we first saw a big jump in partial and even some complete response rates. And that was originally published back in the early 90s. 
And really for the past 30 to 40 years, people have been studying ways to further augment immunosuppressive therapy, mitigating toxicity, and get better count recovery that's durable. And at first, it was just ATG and cyclosporine. And for reasons that I'll be candid, I don't think anybody understands. People believe that in the upfront setting for immunosuppressive therapy, horse or equine is superior to rabbit. This is very unscientific, but the way I explain it to patients, because sometimes we get bogged down in this where we shouldn't, I guess we're more similar to horses than we are to rabbits. I'm sure that's not exactly (laughs) true, but that is what the data shows. And in the United States, where we are in a privileged position quite often with availability of medicines, we choose horse as the frontline setting. And then for many years, there was the addition of serolimus, tacrolimus was tried, the addition of mycophenolate, all these additional agents being added to horse ATG and cyclosporin, and really no augmentation of response rates. And then the NIH did a fairly small but single institution study that added the thrombopoietin mimetic L-trombopeg to the horse ATG and the cyclosporin, and that seemed to bump up the response rates a little bit. And in the United States, L-trombopeg was already approved for relapse and refractory aplastic anemia as a single agent. And then it was fairly rapidly picked up in the United States as triple therapy for what was presumed to be immune responsive, newly diagnosed disease because the counts could come up more quickly. And then that led to the study that you're alluding to called the RACE trial, which was a randomized, a true randomized phase three conducted uh, in Europe, not in the United States, but based on that preliminary data. And it was published in um, the New England Journal this spring. And it really looked at two drugs, horse ATG with cyclosporin compared to horse ATG cyclosporin and L-trombopeg and whether or not one was superior. And so we can talk about those results or whatever makes sense to you guys. I think before we jump into the results, I think one important is what is the, you know, biological rationale behind using L-thrombopag? I know that, you know, it works on TPO, but TPO is a thrombopoietin receptor. It should stimulate the platelets, but why does it improve the all counts, including the neutrophils as well as the hemoglobin? Do you have any hypothesis regarding that? Well, I know that it's not proven yet. No, and I, I think it's actually really complicated because you bring up a few good points. So the truth is, I don't think anybody fully understands the mechanism of action of L-trombopeg, specifically in aplastic anemia, because we know in this disease, through studies that's been published, that there are high levels of endogenous thrombopoietin. And we also know that other growth factors aren't as helpful. And so the way in which it stimulates hematopoiesis in these patients, I think, is just less clear. Some people think that the stimulus to improve across all lineages is at the level of the stem cells or even one step more mature progenitor cells, but it appears to sustain hematopoiesis. And that's why I think we see the counts come up more quickly while the immune effect of the ATG and the cyclosporin is given time. So I kind of view it as something that must just buy time to hold and check the immune And so it's like a double hump of response. You get a little extra pressure for reasons, probably at the stem cell, just to push through with hematopoiesis from the L-trombopeg. 
and then the immunosuppression is given that time to act so that the counts can continue. There's also some data that it prevents um, the inhibitory effect of interferon gamma because it has something to do with interrupting endogenous TPO in the receptor, but I think that's not fully flushed out, at least in my own head, as in terms of a solid slam dunk mechanism. Now, talking about the study design, as you alluded, it's a randomized clinical trial uh, comparing uh, immunosuppressive therapy, which is ATG plus cyclosporin, with or without l pack. What was the you know, primary endpoint of this study? And at the same time, can you talk about the key findings of the study? Sure. So as I mentioned, it was a real, the real deal. Um, multicenter randomized phase three, where the primary endpoint was complete, complete hematologic response at three months. And then they had a lot of other, you know, very clinically relevant uh, secondary endpoints, namely overall survival, partial response rates, uh, things that are really clinically meaningful to all of us. And the way they defined complete response was, as it has been pretty rigorously, hemoglobin has to get greater than 10, the neutrophils greater than 1,000, and the platelets greater than 100. The way the results came out, um, there's some unique figures in it, but I think a sort of fair summary is the two groups were well-balanced, the median follow-up was about two years, and amount of patients that had a complete response was at three months, was lower in the two-drug arm compared to the three-drug arm. And this was extended a little bit when you looked again at the six-month time point, which is another important time point. But overall survival wasn't as clear. The time to first response, though, was clearly faster when you add l peg, which probably gets back to your good question about how and why does it work. But the overall survival is not statistically significantly different between the two groups. Uh, one other thing I noticed in the study is they added, you know, in our practice, we start all three drugs simultaneously, uh, both ATG, cyclosporin, and l pag. Um, but in the in their study, I noticed that they started l pack a couple of weeks later. What do you think is the rationale behind that? Well, candidly, I suspect these were discussions had with the sponsor about making sure that no toxicity was attributable to l pack that might have been from ATG, which we all know in the first four to seven days, it's kind of hard on patients in terms of liver enzyme elevations, uh, creatinine elevation. And so I would wager it was simply to avoid any confounding there. And one other thing is why the duration of therapy is fixed to six months. Is there any particular rationale behind that or that is the um, maximum treatment we can give to these patients? I mean, I'm just I always wonder why six months was chose magically. Why not three months or why not 12 months? I think sometimes in trial design, which is probably a whole nother podcast that you guys have, but some of these things are just for practicality, cost, and time metrics that can be met within the timeline that makes sense to complete this study. And so to your direct question, is this the most we can give a patient? Well, I don't think that that's what this tells us one way or another. I think some of this was based off the single study at the NIH and some longer term follow up there, where we know that when you taper it too quickly, the patients 
tend to relapse pretty overtly. But the same is true of cyclosporin. And so there's a lot of nuance there. The other thing that many people are concerned about is the clonal evolution from this stimulatory pressure of Altrombopeg. And I think they wanted to mitigate against any events of that nature also by not having it be longer. So now talking about the toxicity profiles, um, what are the, some of the side effects do you mention to the patient with, you know, let's say, for example, cyclosporin, Altrombopeg, and ATG? So I usually... I start with ATG and I'm pretty honest and I, you, you gentlemen will chuckle, but I do always ask if a patient has a horse allergy, kind of just as I ask, but only once has someone said, well, actually, when I rode a horse at camp as a child, I sneezed and got really, my throat went small. Literally, this was true. This was a woman who had been to camp 20 years prior. So I, I do always talk about that because there can be true reactions to the horse ATG. And then I talk about the things we alluded to of transaminitis, high fevers, I often and honest with patients that they feel like they have a terrible flu for a week or more, we can manage the symptoms, but that ATG therapy is not easy. With cyclosporin, I focus on nephrotoxicity for sure, hypertension for sure, tremor, gingival hyperplasia, and then <laughs> especially with my young women, the hirsutism, because it really does make you hairy. Um, and they get very upset about that. So, But if it's been mentioned, at least they're not shocked that something is terribly wrong. And then in terms of L-trombopeg, it can have transaminase elevation as well. That is less common, certainly than ATG, but it's reported. It can have increased vascular malformations have been reported. But mostly we talk about the longer-term consequences if we think that pushing of mutations or clonal evolution is problematic or not. All right. So now we'll um, switch gears a little bit. So let's assume that this 64-year-old patient that we discussed earlier, you know, has some comorbidities, for example, cardiac comorbidities, which makes them ineligible for a transplant. And you started them on the triple therapy, ATG, cyclosporin, and l And the patient did not respond, let's say, at six months. And uh, you have to switch treatment, but the patient is clearly transplant ineligible what treatments do you use, second-line treatment in, in such situations when they are clearly transplant ineligible? So it's tricky. I'm not going to lie. I'll mention just one thing. Not everybody gives triple therapy at the beginning. I think it is possible from me or perhaps others that she only got ATG and cyclosporin. And there can be a lot of reasons for that. One can just be the financial toxicity. It's, you know, She doesn't have Medicare. She's only 64. But we have to think about that. Um, as one piece. And so if she only got two drugs, then I think obviously the label for L-trombopeg in the relapsed and refractory setting is that you added then. And so I think that's one option. There is some data actually for romiplostum. Um, it's not done commonly, but it is possible. There are patients who just need more time and I'm sorry to say, sometimes we have to sacrifice the creatinine a little bit and let them run high there to really push the cyclosporin levels to those solid, consistent troughs between 200 and 300 on the high side if we can. There are limited options, though, as you allude to, if somebody is truly not a transplant candidate. Transfusional support may be the most benign, though certainly we know that blood is not an unlimited resource. 
managing all other things as best we're able in case, you know, back to our PH clone discussion, I revisit if there's any hemolysis or any bleeding that's contributing to their dense transfusion dependence. I use prophylactic antibiotics. I personally do not use alemtuzumab. I find it overly toxic and the infection rates and complications usually don't ultimately benefit the patient. But it's a it's a very tricky area. We have very few options in this space, um, unfortunately. And uh, in your practice, um, out of like 100% of patients you treat, how many percent of patients usually respond to the triple therapy? Well, you know, there's responses and there's complete responses. And, you know, complete responses that are durable are actually a paucity. It's a minority of patients, maybe maybe between 10 and 20% for complete responses. And that's really what the trial data has borne out. In terms of partial response, a lot of it depends on intensity of cyclosporin levels. And if they're truly therapeutic in a protracted fashion, then we might get to 50, sometimes 60% of partial responses. One small pearl I'll just mention, and maybe it's just my patient population, but I have a lot of gentlemen who have baseline hypertension that respond, but they're now running a creatinine solidly of two with modest cyclosporin. And sometimes those patients need um, an ESA, an erythropoiesis stimulating agent, because now they have anemia of chronic renal disease on top of everything else. And so there's a lot of clinical manipulations you do to try and keep them as transfusion independent or infrequent as possible and out of the clinic so that they can have a decent quality of life. And are there any scenarios where if let's say, for example, the patient had a partial response at six month time point, do you still continue treatment like the both cyclosporin and L-trombopac beyond six months if they had a partial response? Well, remember, I usually haven't been using L-trovopeg, but that's one thing we can really learn from the literature. And some of this is about a deep dive into the supplemental materials on the 2017 New England Journal paper, and then the longer-term follow-up by Dr. Patel in blood just a few months ago, that when you stop cyclosporin cold turkey, these patients relapse. This has kind of been known clinically for a long time. Abrupt withdrawal is probably not in the patient's best interest ever. If a true commitment to immunosuppression has been done, these patients need to stay on cyclosporin at therapeutic levels for at least a year, sometimes longer. And if it's time to begin the taper, super slow. And that's hard for everybody, right? I mean, well, maybe not you gentlemen, but I'm an impatient person, Like, but you really gotta go slow and steady or they re- will relapse. I have one woman, bless her heart, she's been on 25 milligrams of cyclosporin for years. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but her counts dip if we don't. Okay. Okay. Wow. Those finally to touch upon um, the risk of secondary myelar neoplasms in these patients. Are there, is there a risk for secondary myelar neoplasms? I know there was a recent uh, published article by uh, colleagues from Cleveland Clinic uh, published in JCO. And they talk about uh, uh, secondary myeloid neoplasms in aplastic anemia. Can you can you briefly talk about the risk of secondary myeloid neoplasms in these patients? It's long been known, and this probably ties back to your very first question. As a clonal 
aberrancy, let's call it. Aplastic anemia has always been a risk factor for MDS and AML, period. That rate is increased usually when they're treated with immunosuppressive therapy, but problems in the bone marrow that are clonal always can lead to malignancy overtly, right? And really over the lifetime of many studies, the risk after immunosuppressive therapy of secondary myeloid neoplasms has remained very real and very consistent. And it's usually, depending on the series, between 10 and 20%. And the article that you refer to, which is some really beautiful work um, from Carmelo Gernari in Yarek Matieski's lab, um, looked at a super large multi for aplastic anemia. These are rare diseases. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, thousand patients. That's it. That's a big, big goal. Yeah, in our world, that's huge. Um, it's retrospective, but it was multi center. The median follow up was a little over eight and a half years, and they really looked to understand uh, clinically what predisposed to these secondary malignancies and. In the patients who didn't get a transplant, the rates were almost 12%. And that in keeps, it's in keeping with what we know, but I think this is just really done in a rigorous scientific way. And the time to get those was under five years, I think, my recollection. And, you know, if you get immunosuppressive therapy when you're 20, those aren't very happy odds. Not that they're happy odds when you're 64 either, but you know what right. I mean. Right, right. <laughs> Do you always discuss this risk of secondary myeloid neoplasms when you initially talking to the patient about the diagnosis of aplastic anemia? Maybe not at the first visit. I think we don't need to hang a bunch of crepe. But I have found, probably because the other disease I treat is MDS, that it is important for expectation management for a patient to realize that ongoing hematologic follow-up in the long term is a really important part of our entire therapeutic plan because this risk remains lifelong. And I just, I never like it when something comes out of the blue for a patient. And so if they've at least heard that it can become leukemia later, heaven forbid they're that person where it happens, then it's not this total, I never knew. Sure. Um, I think uh, finally to talk about, and uh, given that we only have these three drugs and there are not all 100% of the patient respond to this treatment and um, and transplant may not be available to a lot of the patients. Any novel therapies you are excited about uh, in this space? Well, I will just mention, I think transplant is increasingly available to many sure. more patients sure. than it used to be. But you're sure. right, there's going to be the occasional patient where it's just not feasible. And the truth is, it's tricky. I think that the field has again and again shown that additional immunosuppressive therapy only gets us so far. And I think we could come back to the biology and say, are there predispositions or mutations that truly are not acquired and are never going to be immune responsive? So we still need some of the diagnostic biology to explain those patients. And we may have to take a totally different path. But there are ongoing investigations in a fairly recent publication looking specifically at um, JAK1-2 inhibitors. And it's, you know, it's, it's interesting work because I think we all know in other diseases, because everything sort of gets tied back together here, but this, the NIH group looked at the efficacy of inhibiting JAK1 and 2 in mice for immune-mediated marrow failure and whether or not this could be another avenue. No, certainly mice are not humans, but 
the JAK-STAT pathway in general is one of inflammation. Inflammation and autoimmunity are closely linked. And they were able to show that roxalitinib, which is a JAK, it's complicated, but it's a JAK-1-2 inhibitor as we know it, was able to suppress um, T-cell activation and inhibit some cytokine production, which we know is possible. And so that this may allow another avenue for exploration. And as far as I know, they are writing a trial to look at roxalitinib and relapsed and refractory patients. I think as someone who treats MPNs with some regularity, my concern is roxalitinib is incredibly myelosuppressive in those patients. And I don't right. know why it would be different, especially in the platelet lineage and aplastic anemia. So I think we'll have to explore further what makes sense if this is a viable treatment. Coming back to the case, um, this 64-year-old woman, she got both triple therapy. Um, she initially had a good response, but unfortunately, around fifth month mark, um, she lost her response. She became more transfusion dependent. Um, right now, I'm in the process of uh, working up for transplant, but unfortunately, the pre-transplant evaluation showed that uh, she has uh, coronary artery disease. But we cannot put a stent in her given that uh, she's very thrombocytopenic. So that's a difficult challenge right now I'm facing with this management of this patient. And, um, you know, I, I was looking for any other alternative therapies which I could offer to this patient. Uh, but unfortunately, like you were alluding earlier, uh, we are limited by options. Hopefully her ejection fraction is preserved and she's not having angina and with regular transfusional support and continuing to optimize what you can, you can give her some quantity of time with quality. Thank you so much, Dr. Dezan. This was fantastic. I'm sure all our listeners will also enjoy with all the interesting clinical tidbits you mentioned throughout the episode. Thank you so much for your time. And we look forward to having you back to discuss about PNH in the future. It was fun. Thank you both so much. Thank you. Thank you.